Good morning. My name is Gary Braun. I'm one of the sinners saved by grace here at Parliament Community Church. Can we hear an amen for that? Amen. None of us would be here if it wasn't for the grace of God, so we thank God for that. Um, I also want to, because Kristen was showing books, I thought I would show a book as well. Um, this is a, a book called In Quest of a Kingdom, written by Leslie D. Weatherhead in 1944. So you won't find this um, probably in, uh, in a seminary because they, don't, they want you to, in seminary to use only books that are written within the last three years. So this is, <laughs> this is an old book, but wow, what a treasure. And I bring it this morning because I don't want to go home with, with it. I want to pass it on to someone. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of very interesting information about the parables uh, in this book, so if you'd like a, if you'd like to take this home with you, um, unless we have an arm wrestling competition or something at the front, if there's two people, but if whoever wants it can come afterwards, I'll put this here. Let's just pray before we dive into God's word. Lord, we thank you that uh, your word is unchanging. We thank you that your spirit is here pray that you would keep me from saying anything that I should not say. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide my words, that you would guide my thoughts, and that all of us together would enter into what your Spirit would teach us this morning, and, and that we would walk out of here with a renewed sense of your presence in our lives and, and a desire to be about the work of your kingdom. We thank you, Jesus, for your presence with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. A little boy stands with his friends beside the baseball diamond. Bats lie ready beside the backstop. It's recess time at W.C. Howe on Lockwood Road, and teams are being picked. Terry and Howie call out the names. A little boy sees all his friends getting chosen one by one. Please don't call me last. Please don't call me last, the little boy thinks to himself. But in fact, he is the last one to be picked on Terry's team. There's probably ample reason for being chosen last. Although he can field the ball well, his hitting skills are sadly lacking. He turns into a bundle of nerves at the plate. And as a result, whenever he swings the bat, he either swings too late, too low, too high. When he occasionally does make contact with the ball, the ball bounces off his bat like as if he's holding a pool noodle. And uh, maybe an adult observing the scene would come over and console the boy and say, don't worry about it. The Bible says the first will be last and the last will be first. Well, that's, that's not going to be too much of a consolation for that little boy. By the way, that little boy was me. But uh, before you start feeling too sorry for me, um, although I was most frequently picked last in baseball, uh, in football, I was often picked first, so I guess I know what it's like to be first and last. The parable we're looking at today culminates in this statement. So, the last will be first, and the first will be last. The context of Jesus' story is interesting. It comes on the heels of a question from Peter. Jesus, we've been following you for the better part of three years. We've left everything. What's in it for us? 
The disciples have just witnessed a young man walk away from the chance to follow Jesus. The entanglements of wealth were too much for, for him to walk away from. And then Peter asks this question. It seems that we humans are often motivated by rewards. I was thinking about that. Like, it's not enough just to go um, up to a gas bowser, put the gas in and drive away after you've paid. No, you have to have rewards. So where's my air miles? Where's my uh, RBC loonies? Where's my co-op equity? We want the rewards, right? And that's legitimate, I guess. It's the company's way of saying, you know what? We're happy that you put our gas in your tank. Here's a little reward. And so um, we find this in life too. My students at school, uh, as I can, I can almost predict that I can hear it in my voice even as I'm speaking now. And I'll give an assignment, and the first question out of their lips is, is this for marks? I'd be lying if I told you that I don't get tired of that question. I do get tired of that question, and yet the, my students are asking a legitimate question because sometimes, as we as humans, if there's no reward, then we're not going to put in much effort. And it's the same with my students. If they're, uh, they'll, in their mind, it will be busy work, and so often I'll just attach some kind of mark to it so that they understand that I actually want to get the result. I want to see what they've come up with. So um, these legitimate questions that Peter is asking, uh, Jesus responds to it by telling him, and uh, we, we, re we can read that in the previous, the build-up to this parable, and he tells Peter that, yes, there, there will be rewards. In fact, you will sit on, the, on a throne and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, that's, that's pretty significant in terms of a reward. And yet, he, tells, he also tells Peter that, I want to tell you a story. And whenever Jesus says, I got a story for you, then you know that he's trying to drive home another point that might not be obvious at first. So, by the way, Fortune magazine would, uh, would not, um, in the, the, by the way, Christelle and, um, and Chauncey did a great job of reading scripture. Um, and and it was, it's so good when children engage with scripture. And so, as we read the details, as we were listening to those details of that story, it, a lot of it doesn't make sense. Fortune magazine certainly wouldn't list the owner of that vineyard as a person who's going, going to reach the top 500 of businesses that, that will be recognized in Fortune magazine. It's, it's the, the business practices don't make a lot of sense, to be honest. And we're familiar with the story. So these, these uh, aspects of the story would have caused Jesus' hearers really to scratch their heads. Like, what is going on? Why in the world, for example, the first thing they may have noticed is the owner himself of the vineyard is going out in search of workers. Does he not have a manager to do this kind of stuff? Does he not have anything better to do than to go out in search of workers? Like, surely someone else could do that work. The Maliens, where we uh, served, they had a parable that translates roughly, uh, if you send a dog on a mission, the dog will send his tail. You always send someone because you've got better things to do. 
But the owner of the vineyard is actually the one who goes out and looks for workers in the marketplace. And every three hours, he goes out looking for workers. The first workers are promised a wage of a denarius. Now, a denarius was roughly, well, it was a daily wage, what an uh, average worker would, would get on a, um, an average day. That was a denarius. And the workers agree, and they go out, and they begin work. And every three hours, the, the uh, owner of the vineyard goes out in search of more workers. And the second group of workers, it, it tells us that he said uh, to them, I'll pay you whatever is right. So he doesn't really arrive at a specific um, wage. He just says, I'll pay you what's right. And they agree to that and go work. And then, of course, we have the last workers. In the 11th hour, he goes out and he hires workers who have just been standing around all day, it says. And, and uh, unfortunately, that the word idle is probably not a great translation in that, but we'll get to that later. And so those workers are sent out. Now, at the end of the day, this is where the parable really starts to uh, unravel for us in its meaning, because everybody gets paid the same wage. And uh, the grumbling, of course, begins. Those people that worked in the hot, hot, scorching wind of the, of the day, picking those grapes, their hands blistered, uh, sweat just absolutely drenched their clothes, and they observe that the last workers who worked one, uh, roughly one hour, they're getting paid exactly the same as the wage that they had agreed to work for. And so obviously they assume that when it comes time for them to get paid, they're going to get like way more, right? Way more. But that's not in fact what happens. They get paid the exact same amount. And they're like, what is going on here? What is going on? This is not right. And so... The, at the end, uh, of course, the, the owner of the vineyard said, hey, did you not agree to a denarius? Like, that's, that's the wage that we agreed on. And I'm paying, I, wanna, I want to pay these other guys their full wage, a full day's wage. Do I not have the right to do with my own money what I want to do with it? And so this is a, this is a parable that really stretches our imaginations it, it helps it, it creates tension in within us when I was younger I used to work out with I work work out well I wish I would work out when I was younger I used to work summers at uh, ONT poultry and uh, that some of you may know where that was located Mr. Oscar Weens would occasionally take a school bus into town and he would go to the manpower center and bring back workers there might be 10,000 new chickens coming to replace the old chickens that were on their way to the Campbell's Soup Factory. And so these uh, cages needed to be repaired. Cages needed to be uh, cleaned. They, everything needed to be ready for these new layer hands that were coming in. And time was of the essence. There was no time for monkeying around. This was work that had to be done quickly. And it wasn't particularly glamorous work. But... It was work that was necessary. So Mr. Weens would leave everything, get, on the, get in the school bus, and go down to Manpower to get workers. Now, Mr. Weens was part owner of the company. And again, we think to ourselves, well, surely someone else could have gone to get workers. No. 
there was nothing more important at that moment than getting workers, and he was not even going to trust that into anybody else's care. He went out and got the workers. Now, did some of them last the whole day? <laughs> Maybe not, but they, at least he brought them out there. So I believe that even today our Heavenly Father is looking for workers. It wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be out of order for us to think about Jesus and his words in Matthew 9.38, where he says, Pray the Lord of the harvest that he may thrust forth workers into his harvest fields. Has there ever been a time when workers are as needed as they are than today? There is a harvest out there. We need to lift up our eyes and see that the fields are already white unto harvest. May we not let the grapes rot on the vine. May we be open to see with spiritual eyes the work to which God is calling us. And like the workers in this parable, may we say yes to the invitation to go out and work in the unrelenting heat and sun in order to express kingdom to those around us. Now, according to Weatherhead, there was a, the, the workers at the end said, but we've been working in the scorching heat all day long. That scorching heat was uh, intense heat that would come in Palestine just as the grape harvest would, uh, it would coincide with the grape harvest. And it was a time in which time was of the essence because rains were coming, which would make it exceedingly difficult to harvest those, those grapes. So time was of the essence. They needed workers. And I would argue that today, a time like no other in our, in our human history is a time that we need workers in the harvest field. Another lesson from this parable is, is that there is no hierarchical ranking of saints and super saints. No one has a corner on God. No one can say that they have more of a claim on Christ than others. And most importantly, no one can say that because they were the first to believe in the Lord, they are somehow more important than those who entered late into his kingdom. Perhaps this was the lesson that Jesus wants to emphasize with his disciples. Yes, they had left everything to follow him. Yes, they had made significant sacrifices, leaving behind family and livelihood. But that did not mean that they, were any more, that they were any more or less significant in God's kingdom than those who would enter the kingdom later. Notice that the language that's used in relation to the first workers, it's reminiscent of a covenant. An agreement is made between two parties. An offer of a denarius a day is made, and that offer is accepted by the workers. And all is well until the end of the day. And by the way, did you notice that the landowner instructed the foreman to pay the last workers first. He could easily have paid the first workers their denarius and sent them on their way. They would have never been the wiser. But no, he chooses to pay the last workers first so that the first workers are looking at this and wondering what is going on. And so he wants, obviously, the first workers to understand a lesson. Now, the landowner simply had told those, the, the later workers, the very last ones, the 11, we call them the 11th hour workers, the vineyard owner had simply said that um, he would pay them, no, sorry, 
The second group of workers were going to be paid what is fair. So what is fair? That's, if I said to my students, uh, if they asked, how are you going to mark this? And I said, I don't know. It'll be fair. I'm guessing some of them would say, Mr. Braun, how do we know what you're looking for in this assignment? And, and yet, these workers must have been desperate for work because off they go. They trusted the vineyard owner that he would pay them what is fair. And then the very last group of workers, he doesn't even make any kind of an agreement with them, really. He just says, why are you standing around? And they say, because no one's hired us. You go too and work in my vineyard. Go. It's almost, it's not, it's almost like a command more than an invitation. It's not like, well, how would you feel about working in my vineyard even though it's almost quitting time? No, he says, get out there and work in my vineyard. What are you doing standing around? And so off they go. So where do you see yourself in this story? I myself, I kind of see myself as one of the last workers because really when I think about the magnitude of, of the, the history of salvation, the Jews and the covenant that God made with them and over hundreds and hundreds of years building up trust, building up a relationship with them. And then to think that, that I as a Gentile have been invited into God's kingdom, it's very humbling for me, frankly, because I don't, sometimes I feel like I've ha I have no right to be here. I have no right to be in God's kingdom other than, and this is where I keep reminding myself that God did invite me, or he did command me in this case. Get to work. Do some work in God's kingdom. Now, there's, uh, there's another layer to this parable that we need to pay attention to as well. Uh, and I think that for some of us, this might be if we relate to the, the very first workers that were hired. Now, we say that we probably, like I personally, I don't like to think of myself as, as some of those first workers that were bent out of shape because they weren't paid the same amount as the other workers. But sadly, I think some of us end up being like that. We do ha take on those kinds of attitudes. When I was thinking about how this parable would look in modern times, I thought of the following scenario. Imagine I pull up my car to a drive-through vaccination clinic. I'm told at the gate that there will be a wait of at least three hours. I proceed to the lineup of cars based on that information. There are three hours, the, I know that these are three hours I'll never get back in my life, but hey, in the interest of public health measures, I submit to the wait. I finally snaked my way to within 15 cars of the garage door on the exhibition grounds, it's just about three hours now, and a health worker taps on my window. Um, sorry, sir, but we've had a change of plans. Seems like uh, we're going to be taking our vaccinations in a mobile clinic to the back of the line. We want to make sure that everyone in line will get their shot. Now, don't worry, you'll still get your shot, but it'll probably be another two hours. Now, I don't know about you, but if I got that message, I would certainly have some questions, not the least of which would be, why was I not told about this at the gate? I might be tempted to point out that I was at the gate at 6 in the morning, and the people at the back of the line only just got there. But really, nothing has changed in terms of whether I'm getting my vaccine or not. I'm still getting my vaccine. I'll just have to wait some more. That's all. That's all. 
Now, um, in the spiritual realm of our time, we might think to ourselves, man, I tell you, I've taught Sunday school, I've served on committees, I've been an elder on the elder board, I've gone on mission trips. Where has that got me? Maybe all that we've got is criticism. Maybe all that we've got is being the object of judgment instead of acknowledgement and encouragement. Now, hopefully that's not the case in our, in our congregation, but those thoughts might come to us from time to time. And like Peter, we're prone to say, Lord, look at all the work that I've done. And where has it got me? Look at all the work I've done. What, what's in it for me? So I know we would never express that publicly because it smacks of a mercenary attitude towards the work of the church, but let's face it, those thoughts might come to us. But you know, Jesus wants you to know today that, and for me to be reminded of this as well, that there's no fourth line to use a hockey analogy in God's kingdom. There is no fourth line. Jesus wants, wants all the players on the ice. There's no pyramid schemes with, you know, the, the person at the top getting rich. We all share the same God. We all share the same spirit, the same baptism. We all are partakers of the same grace. You know, when the thief on the cross, I often think of this parable in terms of that thief on the cross. He was uh, on the cross, and at the very last minute of his life, having admitted that he deserved to be there, that he had no right to expect anything, but he, he turns to Jesus and he says, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns to him and says, truly, today, you will be with me in paradise. We might look at that man and some of the people that were there probably, if they overheard that conversation, they might have thought to themselves, I don't get, I, don't, I just don't understand this. This, this low-life thief, this cutthroat, this murderer is going to get into the kingdom on his very last breath at the very 11th hour of his life? How does that make sense? But the answer is just so simple, and it's always been the same. The answer is God's generosity. God is just so kind and so generous, and he can do what he wants, and he will do what he wants. The landowner, uh, sorry, the, in this parable, the landowner cautions the laborers to avoid jealousy. Are you envious because I am generous? He asks the workers who have been sweating and baking in the hot sun. The underlying message in that question is that there should be no room in our thoughts and attitudes for jealousy towards others towards whom God has extended mercy. Can he not do with his mercy what he wants? Is it right that we should be bent out of shape because someone who we would consider undeserving has received mercy? We should be rejoicing when others receive the full measure of God's grace and kindness. God is good and kind beyond measure. 
Another takeaway from this parable is that, is that seeing people making their way into the kingdom is in itself reward enough. Peter at, at initially had asked Jesus, well, what, what is, what's the reward? What's in it for us? And Jesus tells this story, and I think he tells it in a sense because he wants us to know that we do this work, we work in God's kingdom not for rewards, but simply for the joy of being a participant and being members of God's kingdom who can work together. And because Christ has extended mercy, we certainly need to extend mercy to others and grace to others. When Jesus uh, was sharing this story, I'm sure that it would have really stretched the thinking of his disciples because, granted, he had already pushed some boundaries. And they had seen him push boundaries. By pushing boundaries, I mean he had, I mean, he had talked to women. He talked to children. He even spent a few days with the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were certainly not uh, up there in terms of the ranking of Jewish people. So it is no, it's no stretch to think that Jesus wants the kingdom of God to extend way beyond the Jewish people, even when he was on this earth. And when that would happen, the Jews who had found peace with God through Jesus, were not to look down on the Gentile converts who would enter the faith through Jesus Christ. He was saying, in effect, that yes, you have been a part of the kingdom all along through the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, but there's always room for others in God's kingdom, and you're not to look down or be jealous of those who enter into the kingdom after you. God's generosity extends to all. This parable is often called the workers in the vineyard, but I believe it could also be entitled God's extravagant generosity. There is no one to whom his generosity does not extend. Did you notice that when the landowner goes out one last time to find the workers, he finds those who have been unemployed all day long. Now, the King James Version says idle, and we often associate idleness with laziness, but that's not the sense. They were asked the question, why are you standing around? The, the an their answer was, because no one's hired us. I want to quote uh, a little bit of a poem. John Milton in the 1600s was a, a poet, and uh, he went blind. And in his blindness, he asked questions. And he asked the question, why would God afflict me with this blindness now when I still have so much life in me? The answer comes, and I'll read, this is where I'll read the poem. God doth not either man's work, sorry, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts, who best, oh, if John Milton was here now, he would just slap me upside the head. I lost my place. Hang on. <laughs> I'm going to start over again. Sorry, John. God doth not either need man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly. 
Thousands at his bidding speed and post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. The last workers were in the right place at the right time to be put to work. They put themselves in the path of the vineyard owner who saw them standing and waiting. I want you to know this morning that Jesus sees you. You might feel like you've been on the sidelines. You might feel like maybe you've been taking care of a, a, a sick uh, parent. For It doesn't matter. Jesus sees you. He knows what your condition is. He knows this, the condition of your heart. And he wants you to be at work in his kingdom. And it's interesting, again, I want to point that out because I think it's worth repeating that he doesn't simply enter into some kind of negotiation with them. He doesn't ask for their resume. He just says, go and join the others in my vineyard. As we think about the impact of this parable in the here and now, I think we need to ask ourselves a few questions. First of all, as we look at our, at our own hearts today, is there anything that we need to confess in terms of spiritual pride? Have we unco unconsciously bought into any kind of a notion that our particular brand of spirituality, our particular brand of worship, our particular way of, of uh, engaging with one another is the best and other ways of doing it are somehow secondary? That's spiritual pride and that needs to be confessed. So maybe we need to remind ourselves again of just where we've come from. If you've been watching the Olympic, Olympics, you've seen some of the way, ways in which some of these athletes have just risen from almost nothing to become athletes with, as they submit to training, as they submit to the work that their coaches are giving them to do. And God is our trainer. He's better than the RBC trainer. God is our trainer. He wants us to be at work in his kingdom. He's so generous and kind. And he doesn't want us to be jealous of anybody in the kingdom. Secondly, we have this invitation to work that Jesus puts out there. I want to remind ourselves of that verse from John chapter 4, where Jesus says, do you not say, yet four months, then comes the harvest. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are already white unto harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he may th thrust forth workers into his harvest fields. That's, that's what we need to be doing. The workers in this parable, by the way, are engaged not just in any kind of work. They're engaged in a specific task. The grapes are on the vine. They need to be picked there's an urgency to the work. They are not working on their own agenda. They're not talking to the vineyard owner and saying, you know what, I had a better idea. Why don't we do, uh, I don't know, why don't we come back next week when it's not quite as hot? No, they submit to themselves to God's or to the landowner's timetable. So we, we also need to submit ourselves to the work that God has for us. The job is immense. The time is now. What is the Lord calling us to today? Are we ready in his power and with his equipping to get our hands dirty, to sweat and labor in the fields that he himself will bring us to?
what's beautiful about this parable, people, is that we don't have to, we don't have to worry about what the work is. Did you notice that the landowner, is, he brings them, he, he says, go to, the, to my vineyard. That's the work. So it's not up to us to fret and worry about what work should we should be doing. Frankly, I think a lot of Christian work that, that is being done is just from being done on a human plane. Have we spent time like with like those last workers putting ourselves in a posture of waiting, waiting to be thrust forth into God's harvest fields? So, may God help us today as I close, to be those kind of workers who will be willing and ready to go to work. Those kind of workers who are waiting to see what God will do for us. I have a, I had a, I shouldn't maybe even say this, I don't know, it's not breaching privacy, I don't think. But one of my uh, students at Winston Knoll Collegiate last year, her last name was Standing Ready. Oh, if I could change my name, I would want the name standing ready in God's kingdom. By the grace of God, let's be standing readies. Amen.